Good afternoon and welcome to Leadership in Crisis, staying calm and setting a course in the storm, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health Systems CIO, and I will be your moderator today. Uh, we're looking forward to some audience participation today. We've got our questions and comments box that you can leverage to get your questions and comments to us. And we're going to do a poll later in the program um, to get your feedback. Uh, oh, just uh, This is a nice way to, to see the Zoom screen today. Um, in the top center, get it into side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get those video boxes as big as you like. And you want the, to say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, uh, we've got Lacey Williams-Carlson, CIO at Bon Secours Mercy Health, Mike Restucci, SVP and CIO at Penn Medicine. We will have Joel Venko, SVP and CIO with Bay State Health. He'll be here shortly. And we've got Rick Grape, Director of Market Planning and Innovation with LexisNexis Risk Solutions. So I think we're going to jump right in to our discussion. Um, Lacey, let's start with you. You want to tell me a little bit about your organization and your role? Uh, sure. Good afternoon, everybody, and I hope all are well. Um, I work for a Catholic uh, organization. We're an integrated delivery network. Um, I never know how to describe size right now because pre-pandemic revenues don't really relate to post-pandemic revenues right now, but uh, we are a $10 billion net revenue health system. Um, this year we acquired um, the largest private health system in Ireland. So we span um, over a thousand sites of care in two countries and seven states. We have 60,000 employees. We see about 10 million patients a year. And we're very proud that we provide about $2 million a day in community benefit across our health system. And my role within Bon Secours Mercy is I'm the CIO for the health system. Very good. Thank you, Lacey. Um, all right, Mike. Uh, good morning, everyone. Anthony, thank you for the opportunity to join the panel today. Uh, I'm Mike Restuccia, I'm Senior Vice President, CIO of Penn Medicine. And Penn Medicine is the combination of the Perlman School of Medicine as well as uh, the University of Pennsylvania Health System, which consists of six hospitals uh, in the southeastern Pennsylvania and now into New Jersey region. Uh, the visual on the geography is pretty much from the Susquehanna River uh, to the Atlantic Ocean is our catchment area that we provide service through. Uh, about $8 billion in annual revenues and about $4 million in annual ambulatory visits at this point in time. So academic, complex research, a great place to be in these times. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Rick? Um, my name is Rick Grape. I'm a Director of Market Planning and Innovation at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Uh, LexisNexis is a data and analytics company, so we bring to bear a number of different data assets that help support uh, clients in the payer, provider, life science, and pharmacy verticals. Um, we work with really three main tiers of data, so uh, consumer-level information, including socioeconomic data, 
um, provider data assets. Uh, we have the, the nation's leading repository of providers uh, throughout the United States. Um, and then our claims analytics suite, which I'm actually um, over in a market planning capacity, which leverages billions of the identified medical claims to help provide different clinical procedure and diagnosis-based insights. Um, in terms of my role at the organization, uh, market planning is kind of a, a unique uh, spot in being uh, both kind of an overall market uh, vision and strategy role. Um, so I look at kind of where market trends are heading uh, in a two, three, five-year capacity um, and help align our sales, our product build, um, and organizational strategies to kind of align with uh, where we think things are going so that we're you know, prepared to meet those needs and the needs of the community as we get to them in time. All right, very good. Thank you, Rick. Uh, Mike, I'm going to start with you on the next question. Talk about the impact COVID-19 has had on your organizations and uh, organization and some of the things IT did to deal with it. So I think we're going to sort of preface or, or frame our discussion of leadership in crisis, you know, and that's, that's what we're talking about. There's the crisis. Sure. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Um, I think there were several aspects of uh, COVID-19 that really forced Penn Medicine, as well as probably every healthcare organization uh, throughout the country, to change. And uh, you had to change rapidly. Uh, my communications to my team each week is, every week is like a new chapter in a long book. And the technologies and the leadership that went along with each chapter uh, are the things I think we had to exemplify in order to uh, make our way through this this journey. Uh, and it, you know, if you think back to the March timeframe, at least on the East Coast, when things started to uh, really prolificate, we saw the, the the virus coming. We began to prepare. We immediately sent our staff home. Not only our IS staff, but the entire corporate services staff and anyone else who could work remote. So almost overnight, we went from perhaps a few hundred individuals working remotely to, in our case, over 20,000 employees working remotely. And that all took place within just a matter of days. Um, so that was a first chapter. But then we began to look more closely at perhaps patient safety and more importantly, uh, most importantly, employee safety. And what were we doing from a supply chain perspective and what we we're doing from a technology perspective to, to protect them? And, you know, I have a long list here that I could go through, but I'll certainly give Lacey a chance. Um, I did want to call out and being uh, an East Coast uh, leader, we did have the advantage of learning a little bit from the West Coast. And I'll particularly call out the document that University of Washington put out that was sort of the playbook, the guidebook of what they went through in the months of January and February uh, that helped us here to better prepare for that wave and surge and things we'd have to do with our electronic health record and new technologies and uh, video teleconferences, those types of things. So um, from a leadership perspective, I think um, working as a team was important. I think learning from others was important. And I think communicating constantly or consistently was also important. I'll hold there. It would be a chance. Thank you. Lacey? Um, you know, I think, uh, Mike, I, I got to talk to you about how you got 20,000 people remote. We have about 7,000 of uh, 60,000. So all of our corporate services are remote, but of course the folks in the field for uh, to a large degree are not. Um, 
It's really interesting to think about COVID um, and its impact on or our organization because of our geographic dispersion. So how we were responding in Ireland had a lot to do with Ireland's overall national response, how we responded in Virginia, Ohio, South Carolina, Florida, respectively, um, had a lot to do with incidence and prevalence in each of those markets. Um, Mike, you mentioned um, being able to learn from the West Coast. We actually learned from uh, some partner facilities that we have um, Good Samaritan in Suffern, New York, in Rockland County. Um, huge, huge impact. And one of the um, frustrations that we had at times was depending on the geography, and I'll just say it, the politics of some of those geographies, you saw some markets really taking it seriously and this is coming and we need to prepare and double down on PPE preservation and other markets who kind of, uh, the tone in their community was this is overblown hype, it's not coming to us. So we had conference calls with our colleagues in New York to understand how very serious it was um, it would impact our organization. Um, had about 4,000 patients across, excluding our New York uh, partner facilities. We've had about 4,000 positive patients. We're currently at our lowest COVID positive census to date since uh, it started occurring at only around 200 patients. In terms of IT support, the same thing as Mike talked about, like literally from a Friday to a Monday, the decision that folks were gonna transition to home um, not only were um, folks who were used to working from home stepping in, but folks who frankly never worked from home. We were packing up desktop computers and issuing guidance on how to connect to home routers and so forth for folks who never um, imagined themselves in that kind of a role. Um, constant changes to our Epic instances to accommodate potential or real changes in bed type type of access. Um, again, with the geographic dispersion, it felt like every day was a hodgepodge of lab solutions. You know, this governor mandated all these tests are going here. Okay, never mind. Now they're going here. And my poor interface team and lab folks were constantly ripping out what they had just built the week before because of, you know, the testing changes. Um, but as Mike was very um, considered in not taking up the podium, I'll, I'll give it. <laughs> go on and on if I could. Very good. All right, Rick. So um, as a service provider or vendor, whatever you want to call it, uh, you have your own needs as an organization. You have to get everybody home. Um, you've also got to continue supporting your customers. So um, if you want to address some of that and um, innovation, as I say, innovation is in your title and uh, innovation was probably called for quite a bit. Uh, to manage a crisis. A crisis requires people to be innovative. Um, so that can be an important part. So just address uh, wherever you want to jump in there. Sure. Um, so uh, like you know, some of the other speakers have mentioned, um, as the initial impact of the pandemic um, started to really make effect on our, our internal company's population, we saw offices closed, uh, transition of all employees to a remote status, um, you know, that had, as I think most organizations experienced, some, some technical difficulties at times with new VPNs having to be created, new collaborative technologies being used uh, for the first time. We had a, a good number of folks that worked from home um, in various capacities. Um, I'm a home-based employee myself, so from a day-to-day 
um, there wasn't change as much in, in how I you know went about my day, but the interactions with folks were very different as many were moving from an office environment to a home-based environment for the first time. Um, we saw from like an, an IT you know internal standpoint that you know we altered permission levels to optimize bandwidth. Um, we saw from our leadership team much more frequent check-ins, um, all hands calls, uh, different employee wellness initiatives that were launched. Um, and I think that's actually uh, something that you know, trickles to kind of all aspects of organizations is the need for greater, more open and transparent communication, not only with your staff, um, but with your customer base, obviously. Um, so with the folks we, you know, we approached and talked to and our clients within the industry, you know, we generally take a data for good approach. So we work to make more and more of our data assets available, um, you know, at no charge for folks that were using them for strategic decisioning. Um, we formed a rapid response uh, team that was doing uh, R&D work in kind of a quick, short capacity, bringing our three major data assets of consumer and claims and provider data together to help identify at-risk populations and ultimately some potential care capacity risk. Um, I know we embarked uh, on and participating in a MITRE initiative um, and worked really to, you know, share our continuity plans um, to make sure that we were having that dialogue with our clients um, and able to understand and support their emerging business needs because many of these speakers have said they're shifting quite quite widely in a, in a short window of time. Uh, we, we've definitely seen transitions uh, of focus from one point in time to another shift you know, very, very quickly throughout the course of the pandemic. Um, in terms of your question on innovation, um, you know, we've definitely seen um, more and more innovation, I think, across the board with our interactions with customers. Um, as, you know, all the folks on the phone are aware, we've gone from a lot of face-to-face -face provider interactions with patients to more and more of this occurring in, in a remote capacity. Um, so we started to see the you know, adoption of not just telehealth, but um, knowledge-based authentication and device assessments to help make sure that it's the appropriate identity you're interacting with to keep high standards of cybersecurity. Um, we've seen a lot of focus uh, within the industry of folks pulling out and identifying not only new practitioners and testing locations, but emerging MPIs. Um, we've had a lot of analysis from different clients that are looking at um, SDOH type attributes to identify not just the at-risk population, um, but potential uh, ability to integrate those um, attributes kind of upfront to help steward conversation and proactively mitigate some of those risk factors that could come from social isolation, which I know we're all struggling with, um, but also you know, economic instability and access to transportation um, to really keep continuity care and care in the overall wellness of their population. Um, we've definitely also seen, um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious from the other panelists as we, we progress today, um, some of the things that you're doing for future planning. Uh, with all the delays in elective surgery, changes in volumes of procedures that you know historically would have been addressed but are going unaddressed, um, as folks are practicing social distancing, um, how you're preparing for kind of the swell that could occur as states you know reopen and identify really you know which practitioners um, ultimately will have a, log, a large backlog of patient needs, uh, which typically would have gone addressed but um, are, are now going to hit you know all at once. Um, Anthony, yeah, I know I've kind of talked about a lot, but um, what, do you have any questions for me? Or um... yeah, well, I, I think I want to uh, let you ask that question um, that you wanted to ask your co-panelists. We're just we're just going to go right to it because what a segue. So, do you want to, um, Mike? Uh, do you want Rick to repeat the question, or did you get it? Um, I think I got it, and you know, it's how are we going to, and I'll put in quotes, uh, research, and how are we going to uh, get back? 
uh, from where we've been when we closed 70% of our ambulatory clinics and we eliminated all, again, non-essential surgeries. Um, and we, we're about into week three of that path. So I think I actually have some real life uh, experience here um, in moving the, the health system forward in, in that resurgence manner. Um, and we're doing it in a phased manner. Um, and we're doing it in coordination, most importantly, with our uh, state government, as well as our city government, to make sure we're staying within the confines of, of what's being recommended by them, as well as the, the CDC. Uh, but as mentioned, we made significant cuts in services in order to prepare and then address uh, any surge activity that's taken place. Our peak uh, for inpatient uh, COVID patients was about April 20th, April 21st, where we hit our peak. Um, and subsequently since then, uh, much like Leishi, we've seen some significant drop-offs, uh, including today being about the lowest back to almost mid-March. So uh, quite a drop-off and quite good work from a social distancing work amongst other uh, activities here in the Philadelphia region. Um, each week, we tried to add 20 to 25% more volume uh, associated with either our inpatient census to be non-COVID as well as opening ambulatory clinics. And we have a staged approach as to what clinics would open over time. Uh, the goal is by June uh, 15th, so it would be by next week, is to be back to 100%. So as indicated, we're in about the third week of our resurgence. Um, we're going to get close to 100%, I suspect. We're, we're on a good track. Uh, but much like I think what others have found, um, not only uh, on this panel, but across the country, patients are scared of coming back to a clinic, to a hospital. Their perception is that there's this wild virus that's not known that well, that's just floating around the, the airwaves and in the air conditioning unit. And that if they go down there, um, it's gonna be really bad uh, for them. They're gonna come out worse than when they came in. And um, I think all of our emergency departments are seeing that impact also with significant drop-offs in emergency department volume. So phased approach, coordination um, over four to five weeks. And I, I think you know eventually we'll all get back, but getting the confidence of patients is really important. Very good. Before we go to you, Lacey, I want to say hi to our friend Joel Venko, my good friend, who's joined us. So, Joel, thanks for jumping in. Hey, Anthony. Sorry I'm late, everybody. We um, we had a moment of silence for eight minutes and 46 seconds that was really, uh, it, it, you know, focused on um, the all the events that are going on today, um, you know, with, uh, with the uh, protesting and um, the riots and, and all that's led up to, to these events. Um, these uh you know past several weeks so um i'm sorry i'm late but uh, i felt that that was a the right thing to do uh particularly for uh for our organization who's looking to leadership to to really um understand uh what to do with a lot of these things a lot of these issues that we're we're now having to gra grapple with in addition to COVID. so thank you anthony you got it joel and i think we'll touch on that in a little bit but do you want to just give a quick overview of your organization and your role Sure, uh, Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer for Bay State Health. Uh, Bay State Health is uh, a health system in Western Massachusetts serving about 1.2 million patients. We have two ACOs, uh, about 100 medical groups across the, the region, five uh, hospitals and academic medical center. Uh, also a uh, really a, a, a very new uh, medical school about three years in 
We have three classes uh, focused on population health and primary care. And we have a, a commercial health plan that we own, uh, Health New England, which is about 250,000 um, members. So happy to be here with you, Anthony. And the rest. Thanks, Joel. All right, Lacey, I think it's your turn to uh, to respond to Rick's question, which Mike addressed about opening up again, getting people back in, uh, getting people comfortable to come back in. Uh, thank you. Yeah, again, um, I'm, I'm going to sound a bit like a broken record, but with <laughs> our geographic dispersion, it's sort of each state and market is a little different in how they're coming back online. But some general themes that we're seeing, I think uh, some have been uh, – quote unquote, open and back to um, doing elective cases and so forth for uh, well over a month now. Um, knock on wood, I almost hate to say it and, and not jinx it, but we're seeing volumes come back very strongly. Um, in some of our markets, our ICUs are quite full, not with COVID patients, but with non-COVID patients because of that pent up demand that Mike uh, talked about. And I think frankly, fear and uh, deferral, um, ignoring or setting aside some symptoms that were uh, maybe showing that there were some serious things that needed to be attended to. So as we anticipate possible resurgence of volume, we're really uh, trying to make sure that we're keeping an eye on our ICUs because um, them are getting full. We're seeing really nice return in um, practice volumes. Um, you know, what we haven't specifically talked about, and I'm sure that we all really stepped up, um, was the increase in virtual visits during the pandemic, which we would like to um, double down on and retain as much as possible. So um, the first number I'm going to quote is actually embarrassing. So before the pandemic, <laughs> we did only 21 virtual visits across our entire 10 million organization in a day. Now, was it because we don't have the technology was because of, I think, largely tradition and provider preference and, and frankly, reimbursement um, for those types of visits. In the light of the pandemic, we had 8,800 video visits in one day. So going from 21 to 8,800. Settling down now at about 6,600 visits on a, on a typical day in our practices, that actually includes some volume for hospital outpatient um, therapies, uh, speech therapy, OT, PT, where it makes sense to do it um, virtually. So we're trying to be mindful of maintaining um, social distancing and virtual visits where appropriate. Obviously, and other things, you know, we haven't yet developed that technology where they can be done virtually. Um, so, so Anthony, I'll, I'll stop there. We, we are seeing volumes come back. We're seeing a lot of sick patients. Mike mentioned the impact in the EDs, and um, hopefully we'll be very adept at juggling the next wave and the increase of COVID patients alongside non-COVID patients. Rick, do you want to restate your question just for Joel? Yeah, before we jump to Joel, though, Lacey, I did have another question that kind of came out of that. So we've definitely seen a, a large increase in telehealth services across the board. I'm just wondering, um, as you all have been going from kind of low volumes uh, historically to now adoption of it across, across the board, are you seeing any specific specialties that are adopting more than others? Um, and have you taken steps uh, for additional um, identity assurance uh, for the folks that are logging and using it? Um, I'm asking because we've seen, you know, upticks in fraud in some ways, and 
um, knowledge-based authentication, device assessment, things like that are, are certainly active topics within the industry. I've seen some folks adopt that and some not. Uh, I'm just kind of curious from, from your organization's lens. I'll be very Joel, you want to? Oh, go ahead, Lacey. Go ahead, Lacey. I'll be very transparent in my reply to your question, Rick. Um, I would give us an A-plus in agility and stepping up and providing a lot of different ways for providers to do virtual visits. We have a plethora of solutions depending on, um, we certainly have solutions integrated through my chart since we have um, Epic instances. Mm-hmm. Some cases, it was just very difficult for providers and patients to connect using that technology. So you name the virtual visit technology, we're probably using it. Got A plus on on being agile and stepping up and being creative. I would give us a solid C on consistency, standardization, selecting best tool. That is now our focus. It's sort of yeah. saying, okay, this is the new normal. Um, we've got to refine what our approach is, standardize it, and make sure we're really using best practice. So to be honest, we're just starting to think about how to hardwire some of those things in, Rick. Great answer. Thank you, Lisa. Joel, you want to touch on uh, that at all? And Rick also asked about sort of opening up plan. Yeah, so on, on the resurgence, or I'm sorry, the um, the reopening, um, we are actually phase two in, in Massachusetts. Um, elective surgeries aren't really coming until, um, you know, non-urgent elective surgeries aren't really going to be coming online until the end of the month, really. Uh, but we never really closed. So, um, you know, this reopening is really kind of, as I think Lacey had put it, is sort of a, uh, at some level, a renewal of, of how we do business. Um, and a rethinking of, of that uh, that process. And so um, we are also seeing a very strong, um, you know, return of patients. Uh, and, and actually, it's both virtual and physical. Uh, we do see a lot of no-shows, though. Um, so we're seeing a lot of folks that are, you know, last minute sort of um, kind of reneging on their appointment and, and, and trying to reschedule for, for another uh, point in time. So there is a safety issue. There is a patient perspective of or perception of, you know, how do I know things are safe? And that is really where we're focusing our, our, our communication, our, our, our redesign, if you will. We're doing a lot of human-centered design work uh, to try to figure out what the new process will be to, 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 to sort of bring folks in. We call this project the Perry Visit Project, which is everything around the visit. You know, what do we need to do to make folks uh, uh, aware of what their behavior should be when they get to the campus? things should they expect? And then how can we engage with them in, in the ways that um, that meet their needs? Some are coming off a bus, others are actually driving in a car and are able to park and connect with us and say, I'm ready for, for my appointment. And so uh, there's a there's a combination of process and, and technology that we're putting into place uh, that is really no different from what you're seeing in your, um, you know, your local, um, you know, burger joint now or, or um, you know, restaurant where folks are actually really used to that process at some level. So we're trying to figure our way out, uh, our way into into really uh, creating that that capability, and, and so there's more to come on that. And, and some of those tools, by the way, are, are ones that we've developed in the past, and others, uh, you know, we're actually um, looking to partner with with third parties who are now in this game, right, of uh, of trying to help uh, folks with uh, intake and what we call peri visit. Um, on the on the telehealth side, I absolutely uh, concur with with Leishi. Absolutely the same. You know, we kind of went out there, gangbusters. We went from literally, uh, you know, very few uh, televisits to, to basically thousands of them a day. And, and so at this point, um, we are trying to optimize and really centralize our focus on a particular uh, technology, maybe, maybe two. Uh, we don't think that one is really sufficient for a number of the use cases. So 
We're trying to pare it down to two optimized ones right now. Um, and then in, in terms of uh, security uh, processes, all those things still in, in, um, in the work. So, uh, you know, we're, we went from flexibility and nimbleness to now optimization and, and really figuring mm -hmm. out what our standard is. So. All right. Very good. Um, Mike, let's, uh, let's start with you on this one. Uh, I had heard these statements in different events that I'd, I'd moderated and done, uh, and I found them very interesting. Um, not a, not a sense of excitement, uh, but maybe a little bit of that sort of all the experience I'd attained over my years, you know, working up to the role and then being a CIO at different places. This is what it, it almost felt like. This is what it was for. You know, and I'm at the right place at the right time to handle it. Um, do, do those sentiments make sense to you? So this is where I might be the naysayer on the panel and stir a little action, but no, um, this is not what I trained my whole life for. <laughs> okay. this, this, as I've shared many a times, I use the analogy of every week's a new chapter. Um, and there's some good that's coming out of some of these chapters, the telehealth. I think is one thing that will persist for periods of time. Um, remote workforce will persist for a period of time. Um, remote engagement and monitoring of patients, I think, will persist. And I think there's some good things. But um, no, this is not what I, I spent my whole career waiting for. Um, but I do feel uh, probably in alignment with my, my panel friends here is that we were prepared. We were prepared and be able to be nimble and agile because we've developed a really strong team. My team is somewhere around a thousand uh, in individuals in corporate IS uh, across the enterprise. And um, we have done a really good job of recruiting, retaining, uh, and, and employing folks that are, are very experienced. So when it came time to change on a dime and uh, be prepared for moving the remote the, the workforce remotely and standing up telemedicine at the same time in that same weekend in that same week, uh, standing up our command centers, which have been so uh, valuable, we go through that. Um, we, we were able to address all things. Uh, so um, I don't know how my panelists feel, but I, I would rather have focused on the things we were doing to improve research, accelerate research, improve patient care, uh, and, and move the ball forward versus trying to react to a crisis that does have some silver linings. But um, I think we all would have been better off had the crisis not hit. Well, I appreciate that honesty. It's, a, it's <laughs> not the response I expected, but it's very good. Um, Rick, um, your thoughts on uh, sort of this taking place at this point in your career and the position you were in? Yeah, I think first, uh, the statements that you brought up were exceptionally positive and not ones that I personally identified with right out of the gate. Um, that, that said, uh, you know, I've been a remote worker with Lexus for about a decade. Um, so from a personal position, um, I felt in a good spot in terms of my day to day, but also to help others who are making that transition home for the very first time. Um, there's definitely, you know, an ongoing social isolation that is occurring and having a profound impact on mental health. Um, 
uh, our day to day. So being an opportunity, you know, creating opportunities for folks to engage with one another through you know, social mediums like Zoom or Microsoft Teams, things like that. Um, we've had uh, a number of leaders that have kind of stepped up and are hosting you know, 30 minute virtual coffee breaks, things like that, um, in order to help you know, build a sense of community, keep us focused on the mission and have a personal aspect to it. Um, I'd say from kind of uh, the way we're doing business, it has created an opportunity for us to support individuals within the industry in ways that traditionally we just haven't um, necessarily been able to do in such a large scale. The adoption of telehealth, um, as I mentioned, kind of has a natural extension to a lot of uh, knowledge-based authentication, device assessment type technologies. Um, we've seen uh, risk populations being stratified, looking at claims. So we use our aging comorbidities data uh, to help provide a lens into those populations that could be most drastically affected in addition to um, our SEOH attributes that could prevent optimal health outcomes if they're not um, you know, proactively reached out to and have mitigation plans in place. Um, I would say from kind of a personal lens, the piece I miss the most is the collaborative discussions, um, hearing folks' pain points, best practices that occur in more conference settings. Um, you know, for me, uh, I was all teed up uh, to go to HIMSS this year, and that was wiped out pretty uh, upfront uh, by the pandemic, you know, with it having been canceled just a few days before. Um, you know, I miss that ability to have my you know, dialogue and interaction with other industry stakeholders more directly. So those things, obviously, through forums like this have started to emerge. Um, there's definitely been a lull in time uh, where we haven't had quite that opportunity. Um, so I, I'd say it's, it's provided some opportunity for us to bring assets together in ways we haven't. It's provided us as communities to kind of redefine uh, our missions and visions and how we work together. Um, and I think it's also it's a good exercise um, for the long term for us to take away what worked and what didn't work and work on our business continuity plans as a whole, you know, work, understand what technologies are needed to support you know, not only remote workers but remote patients and making sure that they have access to the care. Uh, the telehealth piece, uh, Leche, is specifically you know, impactful to me. I'm a new parent. Um, so when my pediatrician finally uh, was able to do telehealth services for my now 11-month-old, um, I was relieved because every interaction was stressful up until that point in time. Um, but yeah, I think for sure. Have a, I think it's going to have a big impact in terms of even how offices are structured. You know, ins and outs through the same doors um, aren't things that people are necessarily as comfortable with ongoing. So, um, you know, hearing how those business continuity plans, hearing how that infrastructure will change, both from a you know physical and a technological, um, is is an area that I'm seeing a lot of growth and discussion within the industry. Joel, um, you had mentioned that you were. A few minutes late today because of that moment of silence uh, for what's going on uh, in some areas in the country. You had this crisis you just went through uh, with the COVID situation. Um, did you feel like you're at the right place in the right time to handle some of these things that are coming at you? You know, I was really excited about this question because I, you know, I, I, I think this is one of those uh, moments where, uh, you know, us as, as INT professionals, as CIOs um, uh, really can can showcase, I think what we've all been working towards uh, over the last several several years. You know, and first I'd like to say you're welcome to those folks that are, are leveraging the platforms that we are now uh, so uh, even much more um, you know kind of in, in, indebted to and involved with. Um, you know, it's it's a great time for us to talk about you know why we do things like. Um, the unsexy work uh, in infrastructure, right? We, if, about five years ago, we, we, we sort of transitioned 
um, this notion of uh, going and, and building another 10,000 square foot data center to a more software driven uh, data center type of capability, um, you know, hyper converged architecture. And folks were saying, well, you saved a lot of money, but why are you doing all this work? Why do we need to do this now? Um, folks were asking about, well, why do we need to go into virtual desktoping? We've got laptops and desktops. Why, why Joel, do you want to do this? Um, what's with this uh, work on data? I don't understand data governance. Why do we need interoperability? Why does anyone need an analyst who's going to look at, uh, you know, standard data standardization and normalization? Why, why do we need that stuff? That doesn't create a return for me. Um, by the way, why do we need an innovation center? It doesn't make any sense because we were in the here and the now. We need to focus on the operations today. I don't want to look at, you know, three weeks from now, three months from now, three years from now. That doesn't make any sense. And so all of these things that I think all of us as, as IT professionals have been, um, you know, either, either talking about preaching, discussing, envisioning, um, trying to convince our partners that this is the way for, for us to really prepare for. I mean, we didn't prepare for a pandemic. We were preparing for the future of healthcare, but the future mm -hmm. came crashing like literally in a week. And, you know, somebody said, Joel, we, I know we have 300 people uh, remotely working. Can you make it 5,000 tomorrow? And the, <laughs> answer was, and the answer was, you know that check I asked you for uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago? Well, why don't you write it now and then we'll get there, you know, tomorrow. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I do think that was, was really also beneficial was that we showed uh, that, that even though we didn't, for example, fund all of the, the virtual desktops, you know, that we had requested a couple of years ago uh, in its totality, we had learned lessons uh, that enabled us to, to quickly ramp that up. So I think, you know, both Mike and Leishi and Rick, I'm sure they would agree that uh, while things that we had said to, to our board or our, our, our uh, president's cabinet, whatever you call your executive team, and you said, you know, we need to do X, um, maybe you got some partial funding, maybe you created, uh, you know, a bootstrap way to actually still achieve some of it so you could learn from it. Uh, and that, by the way, is some of what these great CIOs do today is, is they figure out ways to still do the projects that they believe is are right and that they believe will progress and transform healthcare. And for those that didn't do that, by the way, uh, would have been said at, at that, you know, very moment, I'm sorry, we, it'll take us about five months to get virtual It'll take us, you know, another nine months to get uh, any of those, uh, you know, uh, telehealth tools, or we can write a big check and we can bring a third party in and they can do all that work for us. And, and we're still going to be in line, by the way. Um, so I, I think this is a moment that many CIOs, uh, whether they, dis they believe they were preparing for it, were preparing for it because of the great work they were doing operationally, strategically. And, and the belief that you are part of the vision and, and, and really the strategic, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, sort of the strategic platform of, of the, the health system and not just the back office IT shop as it was in the past. So. Very good. Lacey, anything you want to, wherever you want to jump on that, um, you know, as far as all the things you're dealing with as a leader right now. Um. So first of all, I would say yes and to every single reply. So I think we might have combined a little bit of um, did you want it to happen with were you prepared? So obviously none of us would have signed up for well over 100,000 folks in our country to die. Um, and for um, what has been, I think, a disruptive event, which will forever change the way healthcare is provided, 
none of us would have scripted that and said, this is how it's going to happen and push that profound change that we've all been planning for. Um, to Joel's point, I often would wonder, when are we going to see some kind of tipping point with virtual care? And, you know, and then it happened overnight. So I, I am among those who would agree with your statement, Anthony. I, um, I would have hated to have missed it. And one of the things that I felt um, professionally and personally was most gratifying was if ever the rest of the C-suite did not appreciate how essential mm. information and technology was to running our ministry, our organization, um, boy, it was crystal clear when we could spin up uh, capacity for virtual visits and for... Uh, like others have said, um, tenfold increase in virtual workers by five or 6,000 literally over a weekend. Um, it was crystal clear then. So from that perspective, it was very fulfilling um, and rewarding um, to see the, the great work that our team has done validated. Very good. Anthony, can I make one, one quick comment? Yeah. Um, and I know my uh, colleagues also have innovation centers of, of different sorts. Just sort of as a as a uh, kind of a public service announcement for folks who are thinking about innovation centers of their own, uh, whatever that may look like, I'll tell you the innovation center that we have really shown through during this pandemic because you know their focus has always been to look at the horizon for us while we focus on sort of the today and we have our heads down. You know I call them our periscope of the horizon. They kind of look to see what's coming and they kind of inform us on, on what things that we might want to, to look at that would improve our, uh, our operations, our, our, transform our health system. In the, during the pandemic, what they became was still that horizon looking organization, but you know, five days out, uh, 10 days out. And uh, they truly became uh, that vehicle for our organization. And, and they actually spread um, you know, their, their scope, not just to technology, but also to looking at partnering with you know, local manufacturers, for PPE, um, you know, production and uh, and gown production, and so uh, you know, for what it's worth, if you have a group that looks sort of towards the horizon, it will really help. Not just uh, you know, in in sort of whenever the new normal comes around, but whenever a pandemic like this or a, an epidemic like this ha occurs, you have these individuals who think differently, who think about the the, the horizon. Uh, those folks are super important uh, in the planning and, and even the sort of the actions that you need to take today to, to get to that solution uh, during a pandemic or any kind of crisis. So just a, just a little thought for folks. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. All right. We're going to throw out the audience poll question. Um, it was just launched and our panelists can also answer. Uh, and this is anonymous, by the way, so don't worry about it. Come <laughs> back to haunt you. I was, I was impressed by the quality of leadership I witnessed at my organization during the height of the COVID-19 crisis. So looking to see how people feel about the things that they witnessed. And I think this would be an interesting question. Um, tell a story about your conduct during the crisis that exemplifies your style of leadership. Uh, Rick, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I actually think has been most effective for our organization has been the over-communication instead of under-communication. Um, as I think most of the panelists have mentioned, um, we've had to learn to be very agile and flexible in terms of what technologies um, we're, you know, kind of adopting and, and how, how folks are even working given that they have, in many cases, families at home, a lack of childcare, 
you know, they're trying to juggle their daily work lives um, as well as all the personal lives simultaneously day in and day, day out. Um, so I know for myself that, um, you know, the, uh, the overall embracing that's occurred among our leadership, not only in their compassion, um, but the fact that they want everyone to, you know, uh, be in communication with one another, encourage those sidebar dialogues, encourage flexibility and understanding while folks are, you know, kind of in this remote capacity. Um, and then also realignment to, you know, how each of the things we do on a day-to-day -day basis is helping to support our broader mission, which is, you know, entering the workflow, keeping our insights in the workflow, and helping build healthier communities. There's really been no better time to help showcase and provide assets in which we can really make a direct impact with that mission. So the leaders that I've seen that have been very successful during this pandemic and kind of, you know, anecdotal stories are those that are, you know, reaching out. They're going from conversations with a handful of senior leaders to sometimes hundreds of people within their organization as just typical check-ins. It's building relationships. It's reinforcing, you know, how folks are interacting with one another. And, and ultimately, um, I think showing a certain level of trust that is really important among a population that is, you know, in some, in some ways scared. Um, you know, not only, you know, security of their position, security of the economy, security of their health, you know, with all of us, the isolation that we're having on top of it, you know, Telehealth has been an interesting area because we've seen, you know, we've been looking at referral patterns. We've seen massive increases in referral for behavioral health, mental health type um, you know, referrals, uh, where folks need some additional wellness or mindfulness um, and, and someone that they can balance and kind of speak their mind uh, to. So the adoption of that and the opportunities that leaders are creating to, you know, foster kind of not only that sense of community and reliance on one another, but opportunities for folks to um, receive those services has proven proven very valuable, I think, within our business, at least. Um, I'd be curious to hear from some of the other leaders on the call, um, you know, if they have any specific stories themselves or if there's general practices that would be valuable um, to other businesses as well that you found as successful for your organizations. Mike, let's go to you next. Thanks, Rick, and, and thanks, Anthony. I, I, I think the uh, style that exemplifies um, our leadership is teamwork, and I, I mentioned that term earlier, but at the senior level, um, and I'm big into sports and our leadership team is big into sports, we functioned as a well-oiled team um, with our CEO being that quarterback, uh, perhaps the CMO and CMIO representing the clinical community. Um, and again, there was so much unknown back in the early March, April timeframe to represent and advocate for our employees as well as for our patients. Um, and then many of us, whether it was finance, whether it was IS, whether it was HR, I sort of felt like we were the, uh, the special teams players where we're enablers <laughs> of, of the vision and we're enablers of the strategy and I'm asked you know, to help with supply chain issues. And I'm combining this answer a little bit with another prep question you had, which was, you know, did, did you have an aha moment as you went mm -hmm. through all this? And, and I thought, and I said, wow, I did. And what I couldn't believe was after our clinicians working 12, 14, whatever shifts, um, when they were done, they sort of couldn't go home because their family was concerned that they might bring the virus back with them or they had a compromised um, uh, spouse or a child at home. And, and I was like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And our response, much like others, was um, we went to hotels in the Philadelphia region and uh, gained allocated space so that our clinicians could rest comfortably and keep their families safe. 
Um, and so what does that have to do with IS? Well, they needed project managers to do that. And they needed someone to track who was going when, where, and that was us enabling what at the point was just an, an aha moment. So um, teamwork, everyone knowing their role and following the direction that was provided by the team and most importantly, our CEO. Very good. Um, next, we'll go to Leishi. I'm going to answer more directly the <laughs> you posed, a story about um, conduct during the crisis that exemplifies my leadership style. So one thing I forgot to mention as I was talking about our ministry is we, at the start of the pandemic, we had been a merged organization for only 15 months. And so my style throughout the merger, which if you haven't been through one, you can probably imagine, highly political, highly charged. You got to be adept at crucial conversations. Stakes are high. Folks end up without positions, um, mm -hmm. you know, or people you've worked with for a long time. So one of the big things in our organization that we were holding our breath on was, even though we've been very intentionally focused on building a high trust organization where we're going to hold together when this crisis hit and we were fairly new at two merged cultures and so forth. Um, so some of my leadership behaviors are I very intentionally build relationships and I'm very transparent. And I think those two attributes um, served me well as a leader during this crisis, um, I had a good friend who would say, um, leadership is your ability to hide your panic from others. Um, mm -hmm. All it never, never let them see you sweat. But <coughs> this um, combination of vulnerability and transparency, um, high trust of your team, but also exude, we got this, I'm confident, I know this team can do it, and I always did know the team could do it, and I'm blessed with a phenomenal team, so they really stepped up and um, did some remarkable things. Yeah, Joel, I think uh, Lacey's points are, are very interesting and well taken, right? I mean, mm -hmm. to be a good leader takes these combination of things and there's a lot of subtlety. So it's almost like you have to say to everyone, we got this. And then you turn around into yourself, you go, I don't know how, but I'll figure it out. Right. I mean, we don't have all the answers, but you can't express panic or confusion. You got to put on the brave face. So what are your thoughts about that? And, and in your style? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think you, you really, as a leader have to show some level of, of calm within the storm. Um, and you may not know all the answers, but I think, uh, and I think Leishi and Mike had, had brought this up, you know, empowering and trusting your staff goes a long way uh, because they'll follow you anywhere, particularly if you're, you're transparent, you're vulnerable. Um, and, and yet, you know, you provide them with some understanding that, uh, you know, you're going to hold the ship, uh, mm -hmm. even if it strays slightly, uh, you know, away from course. And, and, and I think, that's what we saw, you know, I knew they didn't, they didn't know what my roadmap was and that they probably already knew that I didn't have, um, you know, a clear roadmap. This was not a downtime. This was not a go live, you know, this was a true epidemic of, of, of different sorts. Um, and we were also lucky because we, we had a chance to connect with folks across the country. I did, as, uh, you know, with my colleagues across the country and I asked them, you know, like the folks in Seattle or in California, what are you guys up to? What have you seen? Um, and, and I would report that back to my teams and say, this is what I'm hearing. This is what we're thinking about doing. Um, but certainly communication, uh, trust, 
empowerment, um, and then having some level of a, you know of a, of a vision is always uh, helpful as a leader because that that helps your team, you know, at least take on hope, uh, but also feel like you know they have a leader who trusts them and um, and you know is flexible and um, and understanding enough to to move the ship forward. Um, you know, I, I think one of the, the the stories that I would bring up is. Uh, you know, I, I would hold uh, town meetings or, or town halls, and uh, and we did it virtually. And and you know, I would have all 700 employees come on board, or plus whatever other employees from even outside of my INT shop would come on, just to listen to see you know what other leaders were talking about or what I was talking about. And I, I can't tell you how many comments I got just simply from from folks just saying, "I'm so glad that you're talking to us." Thank you for the information, yeah. even though you, you don't know all the answers. Um, and, and we appreciate you recognizing the work that we're doing. Uh, we had a weekly stand up where we would, I would, uh, you know, my deputy would basically talk about all the great things that occurred during the course of the week. Cause I, I know my colleagues online and probably posted, you know, um, you know, 120%, uh, you know, uh, effort and, um, and, and work. Uh, nobody was, doing nothing. Everybody was, was doing something and a lot more than something. Um, and so that recognition also went a long way. So, um, you know, it's, I, I know that I don't uh, make stuff succeed on my own. That's, that's not what leaders do. What leaders do is, is, uh, is, is to help folks uh, really succeed, uh, you know, on their own and with their teams. And, and, and we just happen to be, uh, you know, the recipients of that good news. So. Very good. Excellent. Excellent response. Um, we're going to look at the audience poll now. I'm going to make all my panelists guess here at the results. So, what percentage of people agree that they were they they were uh, witnessing impressive leadership at their organization? Rick, give me a number. Seventy-three percent. So, Rick is at seventy-three. All right, I like it. I like it, Mike. Ninety-four uh, percent. Ninety-four. Mike's an optimist. Mike thinks everyone's very happy out there. Um, Joel? They should be. You know, Mike took my number, so I'm going to go 93. <laughs> I'm going to go 93. I'm going to go 93, Mike. Just 93. Dollars. So you're really getting – you really boxed him out. Hey, I watch Price is Right. I know how Price is Right works. I, you know, yeah. All right, Lacey, what do you got? You know, I would guess right up with them on the high side, so high – Low 90s. Low, low 90s? Mm-hmm. All right, well, you got to give me a number because we got – Joel's at 93. There's not many no, low 90s left. 91. Uh. 91. All right, well, the answer is – and let's share this – 87%. Uh. 87%. So, I think yes, Lacey's got it. Lacey's got it. You win, Lacey. You win the prize. All right, listen – we only have like a minute or two left. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give all our panelists an opportunity for a short parting thought. And what I'd like that parting thought to express would be advice, leadership advice, your best leadership nugget piece of wisdom on how to be successful. Let's keep uh, the target of these CIOs um, who maybe aren't uh, very long in their career. Uh, fairly new CIOs, those aspiring to the position. What's your, based on what you've experienced since January, which is unbelievable what, what the world has gone through since January, what's your best nugget of leadership wisdom 
that uh, has sort of helped you be successful. Uh, Mike, let's start with you. I, I would say real quickly that um, building strong relationships and um, over communicating have been the keys throughout this uh, crisis and, and moving things forward. And that, that those are just skills and qualities that uh, will serve people well throughout their entire career. But uh, building those strong relationships and communicating, and I think to Lacey's point and, and uh, Joel's point, that building the, uh, the trust with your team is ever more important. Very good, Lacey. Um, you know, uh, when Joel arrived, he was talking about uh, where he had come from. And um, in my mind, that's a crisis equal to what COVID was and is. Um, I, I'm very aware that there are a lot of people on my team who are hurting. And I've had conversations with them, and we're trying to create space on the team for voice. So my advice is lean in, even if you're not comfortable so for COVID, definitely the role of a CIO was to lean in. You know, Mike talked about securing whole space. I'm sorry. So don't just stay in your lane. Lean in. And in the new crisis that we're experiencing of racial inequity and people who are hurting and people who don't know how to talk about it, again, I would say lean in and create space and be willing to be vulnerable with your team. Very good, Joel. Yeah, you know, um, I, 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 I'm going to go back to, well, I agree with what uh, Mike and uh, Leishu said, of course. Um, I'm going to go back to what I learned from my mom. And um, and I, I think about this all the time. Actually, this is how I s sort of score myself. And I got to say, I'm, I'm not near um, anywhere near an A on any of these areas, certainly. But, you know, she, she sort of talked about the four L's for me. And, and one was, uh, you know, so it was, it was always learn, um, always listen. Uh, lean in, as Lacey had mentioned, and then love. And so, you know, if you think about those four things, uh, you know, that's what really makes, I think, the biggest, the, the, that sort of makes a difference for the L that we're all trying to aspire to, which is how do we become a leader? And um, and I, I'd say that, especially today, the the love part is, is something that we really need to focus on. Um, and that has everything to do with understanding. It has everything to do with, with um, you know, empathizing and sympathizing. Uh, and we'd have to do a lot more of that. And I think we start with our teams. Our teams are absolutely the folks that we, uh, without doubt, rely on and have to believe in and should believe in. And to be able to, to, to love them is, is, I think, what's going to make them successful and, and, and the organization ultimately successful. Very good. Rick, I'll give you the last word. Sure. Um, I'd say be flexible, adaptable, compassionate, um, and something I try and encourage with my own daughter, creative. Um, I think creative solutions, the ability to be flexible and shift based on priorities, needs, just knowing that you don't ultimately know everything that's going to go tomorrow and uh, the best laid plans of mice and men, so to speak, um, you, you, know, you can only kind of roll with it to an extent. Um, all preparedness has an opportunity to pivot uh, and shift based on uh, what your organization is specifically struggling with, but there's, there's a wealth of creative solutions and technologies out there that can support anyone's business, so be open to them. Um, you know, they talked about adopting a lot of different technologies um, for telehealth, and, and I think that was the right approach. You've got some folks that are going to be comfortable through different mediums, some practitioners that are going to adopt one over the other, um, and the ability to support all of those and then do a high level of uh, you know, security and assurance behind it is, is important. 
Very good. All right. That's about all we had time for today. Excellent conversation. Um, regarding uh, C, uh, CEUs, if you have any programs you're involved with, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox and you go to our website to register for our upcoming events. With that, I very much want to thank our, our excellent panel today, Lacey Williams-Carlson, Mike Restuccia, Joel Venko and Rick Grape, and I want to thank Lexus Nexus Risk Solution uh, Risk, sorry, Lexus Nexus Risk Solutions for making this event possible, and thank our panelists for attending. Everybody, have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you.